For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Happy Earth Day. Earth Day could well be my favourite time of year. How about you? I love it because it encourages us to think about the natural world, but also how we relate to it, and we're obviously also part of it. Last week, I recommended you go back and revisit some of the eps from previous years about trees, and we'll share those links again. But this week, I've got the most thrilling interview for you. It's with Merlin Sheldrake, biologist and the author of a wonderful book called Entangled Life, about how fungi have shaped our world and are essential to its survival. As he says, they are inside you and around you. They sustain you and all that you depend on. As you hear these words, fungi are changing the way that life happens, as they have done for more than a billion years. It's pretty obvious I've got a major crush on Merlin. He's got the most fabulous mind and voice. You're in for such a treat when you listen to him. He's just brilliant. So please do share it with your friends far and wide, because what Merlin has to say about the fungi kingdom is just mind-blowing. It's also Fashion Revolution Week, and if you haven't already, do hop back and listen to last week's show with Agarim from Fashrev, Kazakhstan. And actually, if you're in, uh, yeah, I should tell you this, if you're in Australia or New Zealand time zone-wise, I'm doing an Instagram Live with Fashion Revolution New Zealand on Saturday afternoon. And you can find the details on their Instagram, which I think is fash underscore rev underscore New Zealand. Also, please do drop me a line if you love this episode, if you've got things to say about Earth Day or Fashion Revolution. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and the show at The Wardrobe Crisis. Also, I'll ask you for a favour. Remember, I never charge for our podcast content and that's really important to me. But to keep going, I rely on your support for sharing it and helping us grow our audience. So thank you to everyone who leaves lovely reviews in Apple. If you haven't done it, please do consider it. Now, without further ado, let's hang out and open our minds to the marvellous Merlin Sheldrake. We have liftoff. (laughs) Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Merlin Sheldrake. We're going to have a conversation about your absolutely riveting book, Entangled Life. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Do a lot of people read your book and then ask you to give them your time and wisdom? (laughs) It happens. (laughs) There's been lots of really sweet notes from readers and uh, and questions and um, and ideas. Uh, yeah, it's been a, a huge amount of correspondence actually. Most of which I just I just am not able to um, go into in detail. It's just mm. it's a bit overwhelming. Well, lucky us. Okay, let's talk about your book's intriguing subtitle. So it's called Entangled Life: How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. In what ways? I guess it's <laughs> I guess it's the um, most condensed way I could express <laughs> what I say in the book. Um, I wanted to talk about how fungi create the conditions for life and, and um, through their various different activities have um, created and continue to create the, the biosphere. Mm. Um, so make our worlds and make our worlds in different ways. You know, our worlds like our social worlds, our cultural worlds, um, cultures like cultures 
sustained by the drinks we drink and the food we eat. Many of those are, are fungi, whether they're uh, mushrooms or, or fermented foods, um, which are which are created by fungi. So, make our worlds was you know, a few, meant a few different things. Um, what's the next? Change our minds. Um, how fungi change our minds? Um, both you know, the, on the level of, of mind altering fungi, which really change our minds in quite um, literal ways. But then, um, but also change our minds about how we understand the living world, how we understand life to proceed. Fungal life is so weird. Uh, so it makes questions of so many of our categories, uh, like independence, in intelligence, uh, autonomy, um, individuality, uh, that fungi change our minds on conceptual levels and in disciplinary ways and uh, in the history of um you know, human thought and, uh, and, uh, and exploration. So I wanted to, to talk about them as, um, as mind changes in that way as well. And then the last one is shape our futures. Yeah. It's, there are so many ways that, that we can partner with fungi to help adapt to life on a damaged planet. Um, so some of the shaping of our futures will, will have an active part to play. And a lot of it will won't have an active part to play. You know, fungi do their thing and will continue to do their thing. Um, world building stuff, and um, and will provided we still exist, will be part of those worlds that they are building and, and maintaining. So that's kind of what I meant. One of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you is this connection between mycelium or mushrooms and materials in fashion. I wondered if we could begin with some definitions because listeners and people who are into sustainable fashion will have heard a lot of talk around so-called mushroom leather. I say that in inverted commas because it's not really mushrooms, is it? Let's start with definitions. What is a mushroom? Can you talk us through how fungi are structured and what mycelium is? Yeah, it's all very important. Um, when we think of fungi, we, we normally think of mushrooms, but mushrooms are just the reproductive structures of fungi. The place where they produce spores. Spores mm. are a little bit like plant seeds. They're a way for fungi to disperse themselves over potentially large distances. But only a small minority of fungi produce mushrooms. And even those fungi that do produce mushrooms, they only produce them for a short amount of time every year. So it's just a tiny fraction of fungal life overall. Most fungi spend most of their time as mycelial networks. Mm. And uh, mycelial networks are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. Uh, and they're how fungi are able to feed themselves. Animals tend to put food in their bodies, but fungi do it the other way around. They put their bodies inside their food. <laughs> and mycelium is a way for them to do so. Um, it allows them to burrow um, into whatever they happen to be eating and release digestive chemicals and then absorb the product of those digestions back into their uh, rambling network. So mycelium is a very important um, concept in, in fungal life. And it's as mycelium that fungi tend to find their way into the world of, uh, of fashion in the form of, um, say, fungal leathers, uh, or, or other kind of fab fungal fabrication materials. So we should use the word fungi or fungi. How do you even, what's the best pronunciation? <laughs> you, you could say how you like. Some people say fungi, some people say fungi, some people say fungi. I say fungi, but there's no right way. 
I'm going to go with you and say fungi. Okay, so mycelium, <laughs> is it mostly underneath the ground? If we're imagining the mushrooms as the fruiting bodies or the things that you can see, is the mycelium hidden? Yeah, it's usually hidden because it's, it's buried inside whatever it's eating. Uh, it might be in, under the ground if they're soil-dwelling fungi or if they're devouring some delicious block of wood under the ground. <laughs> uh, but they might also be in plants, you know, in plant leaves, in plant shoots. They might be in animal bodies. They might be in uh, the walls of your house. They might be in the canvases of old paintings hanging in museums. So it's not necessarily in the soil, but it's it's inside whatever they're eating, that's for sure. All right, I wanted you to tell us one fantastic thing about the mysterious wonder that is mycelium. I mean, you've written a whole book full, but what would you start us off with a magical property? Well, there, um, there's, there's lots of ways to be a mycelial network. You know, there's <laughs> many, many millions of species of fungi and some mycelial networks are tiny and don't they could fit on a speck of house dust. And uh, Some mycelial networks are among the largest organisms on the planet uh, and can range over kilometres. Yeah, I was astounded to think of the span, uh, the possible span. Well, w- yeah, so what, so one of the largest organisms we know about is a, a mycelial network in the States that sprawls over nearly 10 square kilometres. And there might be you know, older and larger ones elsewhere in the world. This is just one we, we happen to know about. So um, mycelial life um, can take many forms. One of the reviews for your book used the word mind-boggling, and I feel like that's what this is. If you're not familiar with this, and I'm sure many listeners will have their eyes opened by this conversation. Imagine an organism that ranges across so many kilometres. It's crazy. And we don't see it and we don't even know it's there. Well, I mean, you, if you were looking for it, you could, yeah. you could find it. Um, but most of us wouldn't, wouldn't think to. All right, let's stick on the fashion angle. What did you learn about myco... Am I even saying that correctly? Myco-myso-fabrication. Myco, my... Myco, yeah. Mycologist Myco. Mycofabrication during the course of writing this book. I know you uh, went to see Ecovative and you also talk about Bolt Threads. David Breslauer from Bolt Threads has been on this podcast talking about Milo. But what, what did you learn about how these organisms can be used to make materials? So oh, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from visiting uh, production facilities, from talking to people uh, in the industry. Um, and the basic principle is you know, the mycelial networks, are they weave themselves into relation with their surroundings and with other organisms uh, that, that they live uh, in and around. Um, they are always weaving themselves. And so in mycofabrication, we as humans invite them to weave themselves into some kind of form which is useful for us. Um, so if you're trying to make a block, uh, a block that you might use as a brick-like thing or a board you might use as an acoustic tile, um, you make a mould, fill it with some sort of delicious thing that the fungus likes to eat, like corn stalks or hemp stalks. Um, and then the fungus runs through this um, damp mix of food from its perspective and um, and kind of weaves it together. And then you halt the process before it's had time to completely devour uh, the material. And what it's done is it's formed a kind of, um, it's knitted itself in and around all of this fibre uh, and it's made a, a, a coherent lump uh, mm. in the shape that you've wanted it to make. And then you you dry that and you um, you fix that. So actually you kill the fungus after it's made the uh, the shape that you want. Um, so that's one way to think about it. It's, 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 for mycelium, is weaving itself into a form 
um, that we might find useful. So when we hear about this wonder material, mislabeled mushroom leather, but leather derived from mycelium, or a leather alternative, we should say, it's hard to sort of get your head around how it forms. But is that, I mean, it's sort of spongy, isn't it? And then it can be tanned in similar ways to animal leather. But it needs some sort of substrate to grow on, right? Yeah, so the, the, the leather-like material made from fungi is uh, made slightly differently to the way I described uh, these the, the more solid items. And you you grow the mycelium on some the same kind of thing, some kind of delicious food, but you encourage it to grow upwards uh, into the air. And and then you when you've dried it, it forms, yeah, this, as you say, a kind of spongy, foamy uh, material, which you then treat in some way um, to create the leather-like material. And different people or different companies making this type of uh, material use slightly different techniques mm. to get their final product. Uh, but both of them depend on the fact that the mycelium is producing a kind of network of uh, tough fibres that can be handled in, in, in different ways. I mean, I'm not surprised that this whole dazzling, new to us anyway, idea of making things out of these networks and how they operate and what they do is inspiring creatives. Can we talk about Iris van Herpen? She is, <laughs> if listeners don't know, she's a brilliant Dutch couturier, very conceptual. I think she's probably the most inventive fashion designer we have at the moment. But she actually did a whole collection in 2021 inspired by your book, Entangled Life, didn't you? She said something lovely. I've yeah. got it here. I'm going to find it. Let me read it because it was so nice. <laughs> she called it... Well, she called it Roots of Rebirth, this collection. And she said she was thinking about, and I quote her, the miraculous lacery of interconnectedness of the natural wood-wide web, which we're going to come to, weaving a dialogue between the terrestrial and the underworld. The miraculous lacery. <laughs> it's very Iris Van Herpen, but it's gorgeous. Did you, did you meet her? Did you talk to her? Yes. Yes, yes. We spent time in, uh, in Amsterdam and... Um, Aries is wonderful. I'm I'm really uh, endlessly impressed by uh, the things that she and her uh, incredible team are able to do, and these such organic-looking forms. They mm. look like um, this sort of moving sculpture. Really, it looks like it could have evolved um, somewhere in some in some astonishing corner of, of the biosphere. Um, so no, I, I I feel as you say this 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 remarkable um creativity pouring out of her of her uh, atelier we're going to come back to this idea of the wood wide web but first let's stick on what's happening now with industry i'd, I'd love you to tell us about what you're suggesting is the opposite to microfabrication, where instead of building stuff fungi break stuff down how are they used to clean up our messes yes so uh, I guess just to to frame that uh, within the wider context, so f fungal decomposition, um, which is what we call what we call the process by which fungi eat their surroundings. Mm. Um, they might be eating wood, they might be eating rock, they might be eating the kerosene and the fuel tanks of aircraft. Um, this is all fungal decomposition. Just stop right there. What? That's I do. I have read that <laughs> in your book, but I'm sure listeners are like, "What do you? What do you mean? How could? How on earth could fungi eat the kerosene inside of a tank?" It causes great problems for aeronautical engineers, and it's called the kerosene fungus. Um, as you can imagine, it's not what you want in your fuel tank. Um, 
But it's, <laughs> I find it an amusing uh, reminder of how broad fungal tastes are. Um, there's a fungus that will eat <laughs> probably anything. just about yeah i mean not every fungus will eat everything you know many of them have got but there are so many different types of fungi that have different tastes some of them have very broad tastes you know um pleurotus the, the fungus that produces oyster mushrooms has a very broad taste um, some of them have much more specific tastes but in the fungal world in general you find a remarkable array of appetites uh, and these appetites have shaped for the planet, shaped the biosphere. So we would be walking around. I mean, the, the space in which we live, the air we breathe, um, and the space that we inhabit is space that has been left behind by the decomposition of organic materials. If fungi didn't decompose wood, for example, the world would pile up kilometers thick in the bodies of dead plants. Uh, and so... So this is something that fungi do. It's a major part of fungal life. It's a major part of life on the planet, even if you're not a fungus, because fungal decomposition um, involves, um, or at least it creates conditions for, for everyone to live. So that's the frame, that's the sort of context um, by which we come to this question of, are, we, are there ways that fungi can decompose things which can help us? Humans have recruited fungi to break things down for, for them for an unknowably long time. You know, when we make alcohol, we are inviting yeast, which is a fungus, to break down sugar into alcohol. Um, that's been going on for a very long time. When we ferment many different types of fermented food, uh, miso or soy sauce, for example, come out of a fungal uh, fermentation, a decomposition. Um, we are outsourcing metabolisms, metabolisms to barrels and jars. And um, this is... These fungal metabolisms and our ability to to work with them have shaped human life and culture for as long as we can know. So first of all, there is a long history of, of us doing this. Um, but there are ways, uh, or not to mention composting, right, in agricultural situations, composting, um, of course. creating fertile soils. All of these are ways in which we recruit fungi to break things down in convenient places and times for mm. us to be able to achieve something that we want to achieve. There are some ways, which I think is what you're getting at, which are called micro-remediation, where we might invite fungi to help us break down the poisonous oversights of, uh, of industry or accident. For example, when houses in California burn with California wildfires recently, all of the poisonous uh, fabrication materials in that house, um, some are off-gassed, but lots of them remain in a kind of poisonous ash. Or it might be an oil spill, um, or it might be... Uh, terrible corporate malpractice, uh, mm. uh, as is, is often the case. But point is that we make a mess. Um, and some of that mess looks like an opportunity from a fungal perspective. Um, some fungi break down crude oil. Some fungi sequester heavy metals like uh, lead or cesium. Um, and so it's a really exciting field. Um, some fungi can break down certain plastics. But it's not straightforward to do this. You can't just parachute a fungus into a disaster zone mm. and expect it to break down all of the problems. Uh, fungi need the conditions, no particular conditions to thrive. They work together with many other organisms, often in a kind of ecological succession. One organism does one part and then another set of organisms take over uh, and carry on um, like a kind of relay race. So it, it really requires a kind of ecological perspective um, but it is it, it is hugely um, hugely exciting, and, and also just breaking down waste. You know, in in, um, in Delhi, for example, in India, uh, air pollution is a big problem. Lots of lots of waste materials just burned in fires. Mm. Uh, there are people working there to um, create 
to turn that waste into food for growing fungi. You get mushrooms you can eat, you break down that waste so you don't burn it, and at the end of it you get something which you can use as compost to grow with. So there are many different ways of thinking about this problem, but it's um it's yeah, it's really exciting. I loved how you use that phrase outsourcing metabolisms when you're talking about how we've long used fungi to do things like help us brew. But I underline this phrase in your book, which is the fungi are at once technology and partners with humans in a new type of relationship. This way mm-hmm. that we use and interact with fungi is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we, we, we do this all the time with all sorts of different organisms, with plants, mm. with animals, uh, with bacteria as well. You know, we carry around more microbes than we carry around uh, our own cells. These are um, astonishing relationships, fine-tuned over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Um, these are partnerships in um, major evolutionary journeys, uh, a shoots of, of evolutionary novelty. And we tend not to think about them, but, but our lives are only possible because of the relationships that we form and maintain. And then this idea that I think perhaps is embedded in Western hierarchical culture, but we think that we're employing technology. But your book really changed the way that I think everyone who ever reads it will feel the same way, that the reader feels about how we exist in connection with the natural world. And, you know, we say this, oh, we're part of the whole and et cetera, but we're still locked into this idea that we control, that we have dominion over. Some of us are still locked into this. And that idea of technology I thought was so interesting. It's like, we're employing these fungi. This is our technology. Aren't we clever? But actually, they're clever and we're only just starting to understand how that works and how they operate and what they decide, I don't know if I can use that word, to do. <laughs> do they decide things? I think they do make decisions, yeah, in their way. Uh, they look, they're quite different from the way we make decisions and the different kinds of decisions. Mm. So as me wake, they've evolved in very different circumstances to solve very different sets of problems. But uh, yeah, I would say that they, 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 do, um, they do make decisions. Could you tell us the slime mould story about Ikea? <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, I have a friend who's um, a, a, a wonderful friend, an artist and a, a biologist. And he um, he had a stable of slime molds that he, he, he kept at home and would challenge them with all sorts of um, amusing um, problems because he was fascinated to watch them solve problems. Slime molds, by the way, are just, just for those of you who haven't heard of them, are, are amoeba. They're, they, they, they're amoeba that come together to form big sort of blob-like uh, organisms that send out tentacle-like veins in search of food. So they live their lives as a network. Uh, and they, they're they really, really good at solving spatial problems. Like they can make their way through a labyrinth and find the shortest path from entrance to exit. All sorts of amusing things. Because that's what their lives depend on. Their lives depend on their ability to navigate space effectively, efficiently. Um, anyway, so my friend, he got... Um, one of his slime molds. He, he always got lost in Ikea stores, in the local Ikea store. He'd always have to ask a, an attendant to point him to the exit. <laughs> and um, so he thought, well, why don't, why don't I make a scale model of the Ikea store with a floor plan? And I can put the slime molds through this maze, essentially, um, that he repeatedly fails to solve. And um, so he did this and the slime molds found their way to the exit in no time at all. And, and he was, you know, he would say, man, look, they're smarter than me. They can solve this problem much easier than I can. <laughs> it's cute, but it's 
enlightening, isn't it? Because these organisms are, I don't know, I'm searching for the right language to talk about intelligent or whether, like I asked you before, do they make decisions? It's like we're, I'm grappling with language that I'm trying to humanize, but of course these are other. And I wanted to ask you about this, actually. It's a, it's a kind of conceit that comes up throughout Entangled Life, the book, where you're trying to get us to shed our propensity to humanize or anthropomorphize nature and try to compare it to something we relate to or give it a personality. And I keep sort of giggling like, oh, aren't they cute? Aren't they friendly or smart? Or I'm giving them these human characteristics, which of course they don't have. No. So, but they do have plenty of characteristics of their own, right? And um, yeah. It's, it's often talked about as, as you know, anthropomorphism and um, in the biological sciences, you know, one's always taught not to anthropomorphize these non-humans that we're interacting with, plant, animal, fungus, whatever, bacteria. Um, because when we project our human values and innuendo onto these organisms, we are, we're making it difficult to understand their lives on their own terms. So the problem here is that much of the time, we end up turning them into those machines uh, in our efforts to make them, um, to free them from human concepts. They become mm. a sort of robotic automata, um, blindly following um, chance events and reacting blindly. And so, um, actually, machines are a very human concept, and, uh, and humans are the only Ooh, organisms to okay. build machines. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, it's a kind of, we, we anthropomorphize them by accident when we do that. And I think it really comes down to the problem of, um, when we say that an organism feels, for example, who says we're the only organisms to feel? You know, the, the, these fungi could feel in, in a different kind of way to us. They're sensing, sensing bodies, you know, um, sensitive to light, temperature, pressure, any number of chemicals, uh, all sorts of uh, different stimuli. They're responding to their environment actively, uh, constantly. Uh, and so a fungus might not feel in the way that we can, but it's sensitive to its environment. So maybe we just need to deepen and expand this concept of feeling. Yeah, that's one way that I would think about it. Um, and get off our, our species narcissism, mm -hmm. um, which, <laughs> which, which gives us some kind of hegemony over, over these concepts, like we're, like we're the only organisms to have them. Mm, there's so much in this. I wanted to ask you if you thought it was sacrilegious that I underlined your book. So I got, I got your book out of the library I knew as soon as I'd finished it that I'd need to read it again. There's a lot of deep ideas in here and I wanted to make notes. If, right, even if I hadn't talked to you, I would have wanted to do that. It's that sort of book that you like to revisit. So I bought a copy and I've dog-eared it like you would not believe. And I've scribbled all over it and made notes. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're, uh, you're interacting with it. You know, it's a, it's a two-way process. <laughs> have you ever done um, that? Or are you a bit more like, do not write in the book? No, I'm not very precious about books. I know people who are. I know people, some people get two copies of books they really like and one they never read um, so that it stays in perfect condition. And one of them they read um, busily, as you've done. Oh, one um, they trash. I'm not like, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm not like that. I, I'm very happy to, to scroll and underline and dog ear. Okay, good. Well, mostly I just put exclamation marks, but sometimes I put underlines and hearts and ha! <laughs> but this was a bit that I underlined, which was a reference to Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is the amazing First Nations American author. She wrote a wonderful book called Braiding Sweetgrass. You're talking about this concept of us anthropomorphizing non-human things in our efforts to understand them. And I was thinking about how I always talk about Mother Earth, like she's a woman, which makes me relate to the concept more. But obviously that's 
I mean, that's what we're talking about here. But Robin Wall Kimmerer, she was writing about how in her language, which is Potawatomi, the word for hill is actually a verb to be a hill. And you talk about it elsewhere in the book where you're like, you interview this scientist who's all about lichen and he talks about how he's trying to let the lichen be a lichen. <laughs> talk more about this. Mm-hmm. So Robin uses this amazing term, that the grammar of animacy. Um, the ways that our languages force us to um, arrange our relationships uh, with the world around us in certain ways. Mm. That in Potawatomi, then this, the grammar of animacy allows you to give a, a certain agency, a, a sense of um, activity, a kind of self-willed, um, animate presence. Um, because the word to, to, for hill, um, for us it's a noun, uh, it's like a sort of an object, hill. But, but when you say healing, a hill is healing, that which is healing. Um, engaged in the process of healing, being a hill, it gives it some kind of vitality. It gives it something, some process in time that's unfolding. Mm. Uh, and it's harder for us uh, when we speak like that um, to treat the hill like an object because it hasn't been objectified. It's, a, it's, it's been subjectified somehow. Um, so, so she has a wonderful discussion of that in, in Braiding Sweetgrass. And, and I find that really helpful to, to start you know, when I was having these conversations in Entangled Life about, um, about how we talk about fungal life, how we talk about fungal communication, how we talk about fungal interactions and relationships. Uh, and there's a lot of um, fungi invite us to question many of these tired categories that we use to organise our existence. And I just wanted to uh, explore those a little bit. That makes me think of another part that I underlined. Nature is an event that never stops. This idea of a happening rather than a thing. And it's funny, at the top of this podcast, we've got a grab from a very early interview that I did with William McDonough, who's the co-author of Cradle to Cradle. And he says, fashion is a verb, it's to fashion. And I've heard it so many times now, it's almost lost meaning. But what he's talking about is, again, this dynamism of doing and trying to get us to live in the process or consider that these spaces are always evolving by the act of doing rather than sort of looking coldly at a clinical thing or I'm not sure but this idea of nature is an event that never stops it really struck me how hard does it make it then as a biologist or a mycologist to study it if it's always shifting <laughs> I know nature is naturing um <laughs> No, I think this is a really, really major point. This is something we, we, we I don't think we think about this enough. Um, it's that um, the whole of the universe is a process unfolding in time. So you you think about yourself and you, your stable identity and you think about your um, body. Of course, your body changes. It has small cycles like heartbeats. It has uh, longer term cycles like day lengths and day and night, night and day and sleeping and waking. Uh, cycles that can last weeks, uh, years and so forth. But the point is that the stuff, the, the matter uh, that makes you up, um, the atoms and molecules that make up your body today are very different. They're totally different in many cases from the matter, the atoms and molecules that made up your body a few years ago. Yeah. And so you're kind of a field of stability through which matter is flowing. And it's quite a big thought uh, because it, it, then you think about, well, that's the kiss with actually with, with, with almost everything we interact with. And... And it's the case with 
the whole universe, even if it's not uh, stuff we conventionally think of as being alive. You know, when you break it down uh, on a physical level um, to the smallest, smallest, smallest unit uh, of existence, it's not a sort of a little bit of stuff like a billiard ball. <laughs> uh, it's energy bound within fields. Mm. Uh, it's a kind of shimmering, pulsing, um, standing wave type processes. So this is just the nature of of reality right but it's convenient for us to stabilize it somehow mm. by making stuff by making things by making individuals by making these units of being that allow us to study to perform operations on them um whatever so yeah so does it make it hard as a biologist i, I don't think it makes it yeah it, either one can live in a kind of delusion that 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 stuff is is like little billiard balls that does it doesn't change uh, or, or one can just uh, can wrestle with the living world that one's confronted with. I don't think it makes it, it presents challenges for sure. Like it's much harder to get to the bottom of an ecosystem, uh, how it's working. If you've got to sort of visit it multiple times a year over many years, mm. it'd be much easier if you could just visit it once, one time point, get a snapshot and be like, well, that's it. That's the ecosystem. But that just wouldn't be faithful to um, reality and the evidence of um your your senses so yeah i suppose it does make it harder but it just it presents many opportunities for for thinking in new ways and it allows one to get closer to um what seems to be the case and yet there's still this sort of academic heritage of trying to put things into neat order or trying to make order out of chaos or whatever it is i was thinking about so you got your PhD from Cambridge after studying underground fungal networks in the forests of Panama. And there's this lovely bit in the book where you're talking about cutting this plant that you've become obsessed with, which doesn't photosynthesize, cutting it off so that you can study it and figure out how it's operating. But in cutting it off, you're disconnecting it from the network that you're trying to understand. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the ironies of, of biology that... Um much discussed uh, ironies that to, to understand life we have to do a lot of killing mm. um i think there are ways to do less killing um than others but it's often the case that one dries mm. slices grinds preserves um stains any number of different things um which normally involve some kind of organized death so yeah it's 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 something I've wrestled with a lot. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it expresses the need for us to try and fix uh, our surroundings. And, and we do need stability. You know, we, we, do need, we do need some stability. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to do anything at all. Um, you know, we need to, to sort of some stable understanding that, that we can wake up tomorrow and have a conversation with someone in the language that we went to bed speaking. Yeah, we need some order night. or we'd go completely mad. Yeah, there's always this balance of order and, or, or, order and chaos. I was thinking about how there seems to be a lot more interest in the whole topic of fungi, whether or not it's in pop culture, there's How to Change Your Mind, the Netflix doco series. I feel like there's many a story in The Cut or The New York Times about tech bros in Silicon Valley, microdosing, etc. Presumably you couldn't approach your subject without experimenting with in a controlled way you write about it in the book magic mushrooms and what they do to the mind what did you learn from that um big question i i've learned i've learned many things um, from psychedelic experiences um i suppose the simplest way to express um 
something of what I've learned is that my mind is a much bigger place. Uh, it's a much bigger um, phenomenon than I normally give it credit to be. So it's as if I spend just a, you know, time in, in, in a small part of my mind, mm. like the garden um, <laughs> of my mind for most of the time. But actually there's way more than the garden. If you go out the bottom, the gate at the bottom of the garden opens onto a path, which goes to a wood, which goes to a forest, which goes to a mountain range and so on. And that those places are places that um, just as much your mind as the, as the little garden that one spends time in. Um, you know, dreams remind us of this as well. You know, we think of um, dreams as being some kind of uh, not quite qualifying as not not sort of the, the official kind of daytime consciousness, but it's as much as a part of our mind as as our waking consciousness, um, and and it's a a wild place that 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 operates under very different logics um, to those that we experience in um, or those that I certainly experience in my normal um, mm. uh, daytime. Life. So 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 this is one of the things that the psychedelics has has encouraged me to to explore and to understand though it's very difficult to understand of course coming back to wild places then i mentioned that you'd done your phd in the forests of panama and i mentioned this plant that you were studying that doesn't photosynthesize just fill us in on that i i was studying the fungal networks that um that play a really important part in plant life so Almost all plants depend on, on fungi that grow in and around their roots and extend outwards into the soil. And these fungi supply plants with nutrients that the fungi have foraged for in the soil. Fungi are expert foragers. They're able to find things like nitrogen and phosphorus by really ingeniously, uh, more, more nimbly than plants can with their roots, which are kind of heavy and slow moving by comparison. So they then transport these minerals back to plant roots. Plants exchange um, energy-containing compounds like fats and sugars that they've made in photosynthesis. Um, and they have a kind of trading relationship. And both depend on each other. Um, both use the other to extend their reach. It's like the fungi have a prosthetic plant and the plant have a prosthetic fungus. Wow. But these fungi, um, have, they've really shaped life on Earth. You know, the ancestors of plants would never have made it onto land in the first place out of fresh waters. You know, they lift freshwater algae, uh, make it onto land with the help of these fungi. So it's a really, it's a blockbuster relationship in the history <laughs> of life. And, um, and this is what I was studying in Panama. Uh, and I was really interested in the ways that these fungal networks are promiscuous they can uh, they can form relationships with more than one plant and plants can form relationships with more than one fungus mm. so what you end up with is shared overlapping networks of plants and mycorrhizal fungi these are myco from fungus and rhiza from root so one of the plants that i was studying which was particularly interesting to me uh, was a little plant, a, a little flower actually, size of a height of a coffee cup with a bright blue flower, a gentian in the gentian family. Uh, and it had no leaves and it had no green. And it was striking. It always struck me as a very charismatic plant, despite mm. being quite small. Um, there were little scales where its leaves, you know, deeper in evolutionary time uh, had used to, used to be. Um, and it clearly wasn't doing what most plants do. Most plants photosynthesize. You know, it's one of the things we think of as a very basic plant trait. <laughs> it clearly wasn't doing what most plants do. <laughs> it wasn't do. <laughs> doing it. It had no green and no leaves. It was not doing that. And yet it was existing. So how was it existing? What was it doing to get all of the 
energy and the nutrients that it needed to survive. And it turns out that what they're doing, and then lots of different plants do this, there's about 40 different lineages of this type of plant. Um, they plug into a fungal network and they receive their nutrients from the fungus and they receive their energy from the fungus. But that fungus has received the sugars and fats from another plant, so a green plant. So these plants are powered from energy from other plants that has traveled through fungal networks and into them. And so this is what sometimes people talk about as the wood wide web, you know, fungal networks connecting different plants together and transmitting chemicals yes. uh, and, some, and so forth between them. So I was really interested in these plants because of what they could tell me about uh, what was going on below the surface of the soil. Do you want to just touch on the fact that historically, I'm not going to say these things have been ignored, but that I guess the important educational institutions have focused on the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom and not really paid attention to all of this or lumped in fungi with plants when, of course, they are different, although in relation. Yes. So, so fungi are a kingdom of life that has not received a kingdom's worth of attention. Um, you know, as you say, they're neglected. They are, um, uh, they've neglected historically and they're still neglected. Uh, what, and there's a few reasons. I think one of them is a taxonomic reason. The fungi only won their independence, taxonomically <laughs> speaking, in the late 60s when, when they became a kingdom of their own. Until that point, they were thought of as, as lower plants. Um, and they had been studied in unglamorous corners of plant sciences departments. Oh, sort um, of afterthoughts, less important. Well, yeah, because, you know, associated with decay, kind of gross, um, don't do all the sort of big charismatic um, mega flora stuff. Wow, like, yeah. Jeez. Uh, uh, um, so they had not had the same number of university departments, of professors, of students, of research funding, of all that sort of thing. So there's a kind of institutional neglect, I think, that, that, that arose because of this mm. um, taxonomic misunderstanding. So that's one thing. But, um, but even still, you know, there's, there's something that goes deeper than that because um, lots of people have a kind of a revulsion or a suspicion about fungi. They associate, you know, they, they grow on dead stuff. Um, they grow on decaying stuff. Um, they, some of them are poisonous. And there's a kind of mm. um, strangeness to them. Um, and uh, that can really put us off. Uh, and, 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 and I think that their lives lived mostly as mycelium they take place out of our sight we just don't know that much about fungi it's difficult to access fungal life um, and that means that they're just more mysterious we know less we're more scared because we know less you know all this kind of stuff so there's a few sort of cycles self-perpetuating cycles like that i want to know what got you into it so <laughs> did you really cultivate bathtubs full of fallen chestnut leaves just so you could dive into them and get amongst the smells <laughs> I didn't. I didn't put them in bathtubs. No, I just. I just raked them into piles. Um, I had this vision. I got it wrong. I had this vision of you collecting them, put them in a big tub. <laughs> no, it felt like that was what was going on. But um, but no, I just would rake them into big piles and then jump off the branch of a tree and 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 into this kind of sea of leaves. As a child, we should say. Although uh, maybe still do it. As a child, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't do it enough these days. Maybe I should. I should. Uh, I just did some more. It's and it's a really I recommend it. It's a it's a wonderful um a wonderful thing to do to be buried in leaves, the smells, um, the darkness. It's it's a good way to get us sort of to, to come closer to fungal life. 
and it was one of the ways that I started to ask questions about um, how things transform because these piles of leaves would shrink over time. You know, they, they, after a few months, they wouldn't be as big as they were. What was happening to them? Um, uh, and, and it was explained to me that that, that decomp things decompose and things uh, transform from one state into another. That, rot, that rotting log becomes soil. This basket bag of kitchen waste becomes soil too. And that these processes are overseen by very powerful but usually invisible organisms like fungi and bacteria. Um, and so I became really intrigued about these organisms. This seems like a superpower. It still does seem like a superpower. Yeah. Um, decomposition is amazing. Um, we don't think about it enough. Um, that really got me interested uh, as a child. Uh, and I started paying much more attention to the mushrooms I saw when I was maybe out on walks in the garden, wherever. Um, and so mushrooms then were another way in. Um, but it was my formal study began at university when I when I started studying mycorrhizal fungi and, and these very long um, these ancient relationships that that plants form uh, with fungi that that change so much of the world around us. I I do think that some of the things that we fall for or find thrilling as kids stick with us in ways that maybe if we discovered them later it wouldn't have such an impact i don't know and i was thinking about that you like this idea of this little kid like playing in all of the leaves but you write something about your father which i found very moving you said that he encouraged you to immerse yourself in the world head first so you were like a kid who loved to smell things look pick things up and look at nature up close right and your father who was he is a scientist of something i don't understand he obviously encouraged this in you right yeah, he's a biologist, a, a, a brilliant experimenter, a, a researcher, and um, a, a very um, wonderful student of the living world. Mm. And but what's his um, field? He, he has quite a few, quite a few different interests. He started off as a plant scientist, and he's actually picked that up again recently, um, looking at plant physiology and plant development. Um, and then he became interested in uh, all sorts of other things, um, development, developmental biology. A lot of philosophy, theology, um, and parapsychology. Um, so then he and he became interested in, in a number of uh, phenomena that um, shouldn't be possible within the conventional reductive materialist scientific model, but seem to take place according to um, people's reports and experiences. So he became interested in these anomalous, uh, apparently anomalous, but actually quite common experiences that people have uh, that were very difficult to explain. Okay. But so he, did he, he obviously encouraged you as a child to be curious and indulge that side of yourself that wanted to ask why. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Can we end on storytelling? I'm hoping that I might convince you to do us a bit of a favour and read out a paragraph. What do you reckon? <laughs> totally fine. Thank you. It's the bit where you're writing about yeasts. As a student, you used to brew beer using recipes you found in history books. The paragraph that I'd like to ask you to read is from Chapter 8, Making Sense of Fungi. And it begins, many of the historical brews were fun to drink. <laughs> many of the historical brews were fun to drink. The mead brought on laughter. The Gruet ales made people talkative. Dr. Butler's ale induced a peculiar golden heaviness. Some were bottled havoc. Whatever their effect, I was fascinated by the process of brewing historical text into being. Old brewing recipes are records of how yeast etch themselves into human lives and minds over hundreds of years. In the pages of all these books, yeasts are a silent companion, an invisible participant in human culture. Ultimately, 
These recipes were stories that made sense of how substances decompose. They reminded me that it matters what stories we use to make sense of the world. Thank you. That last sentence gives me the chills. I think it's um, when we're trying to cut through the complexity of big, big questions of what, what we're here for and how we relate to the natural world and everything in it. It's the stories that make it make sense for people. And when we started off talking about the tendency to want to anthropomorphize nature, it's just because we want to relate to her. I'm doing it again, sorry. But we, we want to find a way in, and I think that's through story. Do you want to just leave us with a few thoughts on that, uh, having written this book that is so rich with stories? Oh, I think storytelling is really all we ever do. Um, when we talk, um, when we communicate with language, uh, and even without language. Um, so it's just such a, a, a ancient um, faculty, human faculty, that I, I, I don't think we really can imagine life without it. Mm. And there are many different ways to tell stories. There are compelling stories. There are less compelling stories. There are a million ways to do it. But um, I don't think it's an option. <laughs> Basically what I'm trying to say, I don't think storytelling is, it's, storytelling is not an option, but it matters what stories we tell and it matters who we tell them to and how we tell them. So uh, that's what I was trying to get at there. Mm. Um, and I think there are a lot of very tired, unexamined stories that shape our lives um, the ways we think and feel and imagine. Uh, and those stories suit the agendas of some. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think they suit the agendas of most of us. And um, so I think it's very important to to question some of those narratives uh, and to um, to think about what narratives we might like to tell instead. That has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I'm going to make sure that every single person who listens to this buys not just one copy of your book, but one for a friend. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.